If you're joining us uh, this week, you're uh, joining us in the second week uh, of a sermon series entitled, uh, entitled uh, Jesus, where basically we're just following Jesus uh, throughout different parts of the gospel, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John. And actually, we're going to stay on this series all the way through Easter. So it's a little bit lengthy, but we're going to just jump into all the kind of important pieces of Jesus's life. Uh, so uh, this week, we're actually focusing on some of his, well, actually, one of the only instances where we see Jesus uh, in his early years. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about Jesus uh, in the desert. Uh, after that, we'll talk about uh, Jesus uh, and his uh, Sermon on the Mount where he kind of had his very first outing in ministry. So we are going to be following Jesus chronologically, but as Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John go, you kind of have to hop back and forth, but we are following him chronologically. Uh, Last week, in the first week of this series, we kind of talked about how Jesus really came unexpectedly. He wasn't at all what any religious leaders of the time expected the Messiah to be. Last week, I shared about a point in my life uh, when I decided to pursue ministry myself, when Jesus, like Tony had pointed out in our communion meditations, where heard it a hundred times in my youth, but then all of a sudden clicked, just that right way where all of a sudden, oh man, he was a real guy who actually existed, who actually did those things for me. It was actually the summer before my senior year Uh, that I made that decision. And I had this kind of new outlook on Christ then. uh, And so I began to see him more as this actual figure rather than a historical figure. A lot of times, you know, they're just so far removed. Like, that's someone I'm never going to meet, someone I'll never get to see. But to realize that there was actually a personal connection between myself and Jesus really started to make me see things differently. I remember specifically uh, when we came back that September, so this was my last year in youth ministry uh, as a senior, I remember there was a Wednesday night uh, at church, at Coon Rapids Christian Church then. Uh, We were at youth group, and we were talking about the actual act of the crucifixion, the cross that Jesus died on. We talked about the science the breakdown of this torturous way to die, which is just its an extremely violent way to put someone uh, to death. Nowadays, of course, we, in whatever states practice a capital punishment, we try to come up with the most humane way uh, to do that, where Romans then were actually experts in creating pain and difficulty. And... When I came back from that summer with Jesus being a real figure, a real guy to me, and then they started talking about nails and the excruciating breath, the blood, the guts, the torture, I remember that Wednesday night I about had a panic attack. The torture of a historical figure is one thing. Maybe the distance makes it unreal. But when you shrink the distance between the head knowledge and the heart understanding, a belief that Jesus was this real man and that this torture actually happened, man, in that 17-year-old mind who saw Jesus for real for the first time, I think, that was a lot to bear. 
it was even more to bear to have the knowledge that it was my sin that put him there and that it compounded my emotions. I remember just being almost inconsolable. I'm an emotional guy. You've seen that of me up here before. And as a younger man, I was even more emotional. I remember just leaving and I was put in another room and pastor was trying, Jeremy Allard was just trying to calm me down because I was just so shaken because it's almost like hearing my friend had gone through that. The goal of this series, this hashtag Jesus following him through the gospels, the goal of this series is to shrink the distance between the head knowledge and the heart understanding. Not just something distant, not a Jesus that's far away thousands of years ago. Instead, to have a heart understanding of a real man who really cared for you, who really took on the flesh, who really came to take your sins with him upon the cross. We want to shrink that distance from here to here so that the quality of your faith will continue to grow. I think one of the best ways to shrink that distance, for me personally, I don't know about you, like that story that I shared about youth group, I think that the best way to shrink that distance is to understand his humanity. Is to understand his humanity. You see, God's holiness, his divinity, can be so far out of grasp sometimes that God almost seems unattainable. Sometimes God seems distant. I mean, we will never be on his level. We will never fully grasp God. For example, I'm never going to meet the Queen of England. I'm never going to meet any of that royalty. So what is she to me? Not a big deal. I don't follow her. She means really not much to me at all because there will never be a time or place where our lives will intersect. Not a big deal to me. I think that having someone being distanced, having someone that's unattainable and far away from me, I think that serves as a big roadblock to us who are trying to shrink that distance from the head knowledge to the heart understanding. Getting to know anyone, really. I mean, this is just getting to know any person sitting next to you, making a new friend, meeting a new coworker, meeting anyone, let alone Jesus, can be tough. However, for some reason, I know, I know this about people, people's empathy and understanding, have, uh, understanding someone is deployed when you begin to understand their humanity, when you begin to see their vulnerability, when you begin to see how someone ticks, right? When you see to start to see those things in a person, all of a sudden, your understanding, your empathy you want to reach out. You want to help. You want to do. Once you start to see those things, a human starts to get to know someone. You start to actually care about someone else. And that really is what we're trying to accomplish with Jesus. Recognition of Jesus' humanity. His humility. Which we're going to find today in today's message. These are so closely aligned. His humanity and his humility. Recognition of Jesus' humanity and humility is necessary in creating a meaningful faith. I don't want him to remain distant. I don't want him transfixed 2,000 years ago for us. 
I want him to be a guy that we look up to now, a person who we think of fondly, a person that we're excited, literally excited, an emotional attachment of excitement to being reunited with him. Not just an end game at the end of faith. This week, we're going to look at a short chapter of Jesus' youth, the beginning of his humanity. In Luke 3, uh, we have the only gospel account, actually, the only gospel account uh, of Christ between infancy and the 30-year-old uh, who we're going to see walk into the desert and then kick off his three-year ministry. In Luke chapter 3 is the only account where you see something uh, in between. Now, first I wanted to highlight out of, or is it, I think it's Luke 2 actually, I'm sorry. In Luke 2, uh, there's a few really cool verses that Luke has specifically that the other gospels don't have. Uh, first, uh, you know, we're familiar with the nativity story, so I'm skipping that because we just went through Christmas, but I did want to look at his youth. And one of these cool things out of uh, Luke chapter 2 uh, was this. Um, after the eighth day uh, when Joseph and Mary were called uh, to bring Jesus to the temple to consecrate him, to dedicate him, you know how we have baby dedications? They had a baby dedication also. They brought Jesus to the temple. And there is this religious figure, a, a holy man, someone who is righteous, um, saw Jesus, and this is what he said about him. This is, this is Simeon's words. This is the, the priest at the temple at the time of Jesus' consecration. And he has this, he knows this about himself. The Holy Spirit had led him to understand that one day he would be able to see the Messiah. Simeon knew this about his story. And Simeon says this as he lays his eyes on Jesus. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Man, that is a... This is baby Jesus. Simeon knows nothing about this story as far as we know, but he lays eyes and he's able to call it, he's the one. He's the guy. I, I don't know, but I can be laid to rest. My mission is fulfilled. It is accomplished. I can be laid to rest. That's the guy. And I think that's such a cool moment, a recognition of Jesus as a Messiah and this special salvation that Simeon marks out even as a child. Uh, later, he does have this to say to Mary, which is a prophecy to the difficulty not only in Jesus' life, but also in his parents' life. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So even then, early in infancy, Simeon's able to say, Mary, he's the one, but it's not going to be what you expect. In fact, your own soul will be pierced, and we know this as Mary was present in his ministry, and later in the end. It's a big deal. So Luke chapter 2, this 
extra moment that the other gospels uh, don't have. Uh, later, even still, as, a, uh, as Luke continues to write after this, he writes this, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. So that's mentioned here after that infancy moment. Now we're gonna fast forward actually to the age of 12. So we're jumping from infant newborn, we're gonna jump to 12, all right? Now every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. I wanna pause there actually. I think it's, a, it's kind of odd you know, that there's so little written about Jesus, obviously. But why do they have this moment when he's 12 years old? Actually, there's some speculation by biblical scholars that perhaps specifically at this age of 12 uh, is a moment where we see some special revelation about Jesus, which is important, because it's actually at the age of 13, the following year, when boys Jesus' age would begin religious training. At 13, at the bat mitzvah, as we know it, which still exists, at 13 they begin their religious training. I think that's special to pay attention to in this story. We're gonna read on, but pay attention. This is before his training, okay? After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, so they traveled one day out, they traveled one day back, and on the third day they found Jesus, okay? So it wasn't they're in Jerusalem for three whole days. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, again, before formal religious training. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished seeing this picture. His mother said to him, though, I think, leaving the astonishment behind, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus, again, this is reminiscent of a passage just a few verses ago. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So here in Jesus' youth, we're seeing him continuing to grow physically, continuing to grow in wisdom. I think this is an interesting story. I don't know about you. Because it almost looks like, is this a rebellious moment of Jesus' youth? It almost seems rebellious, which is kind of 
counter our understanding of Jesus' perfect life? How does one be rebellious? How does one honor his father and mother if he's leaving them behind? Right? Is it intentionally defiant? As Jesus says, why were you looking at me? Can you imagine one of your kids? He's 12. Carter's 9. Can you imagine him just simply disappearing for days? I'd be pretty ticked. Why did you stay behind? Of course, this may make special note of what Jesus' relationship with his parents was like. (laughs) Maybe they knew he's of God. Maybe he got a little bit more room than the average 12-year-old. I don't know. But apparently, they were anxious in their search for him. But is it defiant? It's kind of a weird moment. Is this defiant? I know that if you get lost, personally, I know I knew this when I was a kid. If I was in the grocery store, if I got lost, what was I supposed to do? Stay put. Don't move. You'll get found there. If you get lost, you know that someone is going to be looking for you, and it's a best practice to stay put. And I almost think that's kind of what Jesus' mentality was. His mom says this, why? Uh, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. It almost seems like this defiant thing. Why would you have treated us like this? Jesus, again, replies in almost a defiant way, why were you searching for me, he asked. Jesus is almost saying that they should have known they should have known where he would be. Why were you searching for me? He asks almost as redundantly, why were you searching for me? Where else? He's almost, it's almost like he's saying, where else would I have been? Where else would you expect to find me? I think he's asking it honestly and in a way, a teaching way. For Jesus to say this, I would be, this is a big deal. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house This is a big deal. He says it this way. I would be in my father's house. This is right after his mother Mary says this. Your father and I have been looking for you. Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? I think that's really revealing about Jesus. It shows that Jesus already at 12, he must have an awareness of his role in his relationship to God. Here Jesus is revealing that he knows who his true father is. Now, we don't know how much Mary and Joseph had told him about his origin. We don't know. Maybe from day one they're saying, God is your father, God is your father. Maybe, maybe that's the case. We don't know. But in a story like this one, I think Jesus' purpose was not to be defiant, not to be rebellious, instead to communicate to his parents that he knows what's up, that he knows that God is his father. I think that Jesus is revealing that. I don't think it's a moment of defiance or rebellion. I don't think this is supposed to be, you're not my dad, moment. I don't think it's supposed to be that. If anything, if anything, It seems to be one of Jesus' patented wisdoms seen through a thin veil of revelation. He's going to teach this way throughout his ministry, isn't it? He speaks in parables. He speaks 
through the stories. He speaks through the seeds and the trees and the action. That's how he seems to teach. And I think in this moment, he's teaching, Mom, Dad, I know the plan. I know who my true father is. Where else would I be? Unfortunately, Joseph and Mary apparently didn't catch Jesus' nuanced answer. They did not understand what he was saying to them. Maybe they thought he was speaking about the father, the father of everyone. But the following passage seems to clear up the possibility of Jesus being a rebellious child. It says there, he, uh, it says there that Jesus grew and he matured like anyone else. He grew and matured like any other boy his age did. And to me, that really anchors Jesus' humanity, that he kind of was growing just the same, figuring things out just the same as we, which really piles on that he was a real man, not just this special flesh-covered God, but an actual man. This verse, I think, plays a a foundational role in understanding Jesus' humanity. How? How does an infinite God grow? How does an infinite God mature? A passage that Paul will write later, much later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, helps to clarify this pattern and possibility, the possibility of a quote-unquote maturing and growing God. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5 through 8, is going to speak about how this is possible. Paul writes this, and, and I used specifically here the ESV translation, because there's just this special combination of words used that I think speak very clearly about how this pattern works. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writing to the early believers, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was God in the who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this emptying, this word kenuo is to be made empty. It means to be void. It means to be deprived of content. Jesus emptied himself before he came down. He put certain limitations, apparently, on himself when he came down incarnate in this flesh when he made himself a baby. Jesus, in his role as a man, shed himself, apparently, of certain abilities. He came down as a child to grow and to mature and to show us that he knows what it's like to be one of us. He came down to show us that he knows what it's like. Now, why does he do that? That's a really weird thing. Why did he have to do that? Couldn't he have just snapped, sins forgiven? Or snap, showed up as a 30-year-old man and just did the three years? Or snap, show up on the Holy Week? Couldn't he have just done all those things? 
Why go all the way back to infancy? Why, why all the way? You know, a few, I think last year, almost like Tony's uh, communion meditation, reading a story over and over and over again, I made this special revelation when I was introducing myself to a dog, actually. You know, when you introduce yourself to a dog, how do you do it? Especially a maybe mid to large sized dog. How do you do that? You kind of hunker down a little bit, right? You make yourself a little bit less threatening. You make yourself a little bit smaller. You try to reach out a hand because they need to catch your scent, right? That way they, so you open an ex, open palm, right? An open one, not like this. You don't do a fist. You don't do something threatening, but you do an open palm, right? Because he wants to see that there's nothing in there. You want to show humility to this dog because in reality, he doesn't know anything about you. He could be scared of you. You could be a threat to him. You might have something behind his back, uh, behind your back, that could harm this dog. He doesn't know you. You're a stranger. That's kind of how we meet other people. I, I don't know this guy, you know? But it's even more difficult. It's even more difficult when you're an infinite God. It is even more difficult for an infinite God to approach you. There are multiple times in the Old Testament where we see that God cannot even simply come up to you because his vastness, his amazing glory is so big, it would consume your mind and your, your being. You couldn't withstand the glory of God. He's so big. So then how does an infinite God Show you love. How does an infinite being display genuine love and instead not instill fear? Because if something this big and humongous who wields the cosmos in his hands were to come to you and say, hey, what's up? It'd probably blow us away because we couldn't withstand him. How does an infinite being display genuine love instead of instilling fear? It's the same way that a dog cannot fully comprehend the inner working of a man's mind. A dog cannot comprehend my ability. He cannot comprehend man's invention. He cannot comprehend man's genius. In the same way, we too cannot comprehend the vastness of an infinite God. God, naturally, really, in his, that state, should induce fear. And maybe even beyond fear, it could instill aggression. If something that big came up to us, we might arm ourselves trying to protect ourselves feebly, but we might arm ourselves because something that big can induce fear or aggression, like a dog. If you don't introduce, you just start walking around in his house, he's going to start snarling, right? He's going to start baring his teeth to protect his ground. So God sends his son. God sends his son to kneel, to make himself small, to extend not an open palm, but a nail-pierced hand. He sent his son to take on flesh and to take on death, to show us that although infinite, he can be trusted, loved, and that he's truly worthy of worship. Understanding his growth and maturity, and particularly later, later in this series, one of the moments 
that really tugs and pulls at my heart when understanding Jesus' humanity. Later, when we get to Gethsemane, when he gets so stinking anxious, so stressed out about the plan laid out before him that he sweats tears of blood, sweat of blood. It's a real thing. This is an actual physical condition. People actually experience that in moments of extreme duress. Does someone who's fully God, fully infinite, experience that? Or does that sound more like a man who is real, who loved you so stinking much though, but was committed to a mission of redeeming us, saving us, laying out for us a path of salvation. Jesus gives us this in his ability, unconditional love for all, unearned by any, but presented for all. That's Jesus. And so again, the mission of this series is to shrink the distance between the head knowledge the historical understanding of who Jesus was and the heart understanding of a Jesus who actually came, who was actually a real man, who really took on flesh, who, said, who set parameters on himself and set some of the infinite qualities behind so that he could extend a nail-pierced hand for your sake. And so this week, I'd love you just to ponder that. Read through Luke 2. That's it. That's the mission for this week. Read through Luke 2, read through Jesus' childhood, this instant, this small moment, and see if you don't start to grasp more this real flesh and blood man. Pray with me. Uh, dear Father, it is incredibly difficult to grasp how much your son put aside to become a full flesh man. His sacrifice, Lord, apparently goes so much more even beyond the cross, but to come down as a child, to come down as that helpless baby, to figure things out, to grow in maturity. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be able to understand just a little bit more the mystery of how someone is fully God and how someone is fully man. I pray, God, that we each, in our pursuit of understanding Christ more, uh, understanding a relationship with him, understanding who he is to us, uh, I pray that in our pursuit, that through your Holy Spirit, the distance between that head and heart would continue to shrink, and that we would begin to think fondly and to think memorably of Jesus Christ, the life that he lived, and a more particularly the impact that it has on how we live now. Thank you, God, for such a loving son who inspires me now. I pray that we each would be touched by that same inspiration. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.